Hello, and welcome to Daring to Tell, true stories read by the writers who've lived them. I'm Michelle Rado, also a writer and audio producer. For this debut episode, I could not be more excited than to introduce to you my very own writing coach, also memoirist and teacher Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I just looked back in my journals to see if I could find the date when Nadine and I started working together, and it was March of 2019 when I had responded to an email I had gotten from her as we were in sort of some similar writing community circles, and she was floating the idea of working with her as a coach, and I thought, well, gosh, maybe that would be the thing that I needed in order to write my own memoir about my relationship with my mother. My own background with writing, I will go into a quick story. When I was about 12, I had read every Laura Ingalls Wilder book and many, many Judy Bloom books, and I had scoured the shelves of our local library so many times I was getting bored with all the choices that I had seen there, and I was looking for something a little more scintillating, and I could not find exactly what I was looking for, so I decided I would write the book I wanted to read. I expressly remember thinking, okay, I'll write it, and then I can sit down and read it. It was my purpose to want to read something I wasn't finding. So I asked my mom to borrow her typewriter and some of the typing paper she had, and I lugged it up into my second floor attic bedroom. And over the course of one summer, I clanked away on that manual typewriter until I had written a book about a girl who was living exactly the life that I wished I had. It's very embarrassing when I look back at it now, but I know what I was trying to do. And when my mother asked me, could I read it? I said, no. And so that put a crimp in all the writing that I wanted to do because the fear in the back of my mind forever is, what if my mother reads it? So with that introduction, let's check out what Nadine Kenny Johnstone is daring to tell. While my pulse quickened about having all the intimate details of my infertility experience available a click away on Amazon, I was most terrified of one thing and one thing only, handing the manuscript to my mother. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Nothing's gonna break my fall. There's nothing in the protocol. It's like swimming up a waterfall or taking away the ground. I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> Very exciting. Um, 
So do you want to tell me, like, introduce yourself as to how we met? Yeah. I want to start yeah. by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So I sent out my first kind of newsletter email. And that was the one that probably that you yeah. saw. Yeah. And I was getting more and more into coaching. I think that's when it all began. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's been so wonderful is just watching the evolution of your work during our coaching together. And I think when you really hit the nail on the head was this, this moment of realizing that your story was about guts, listening to your guts, both physically and emotionally, holistically. And that has been such a beautiful thing to witness on my end. And so when you started this podcast, I just thought, wow, this is so in line with what you're trying to do. This is so in line with your message in your writing. And so, yeah, what we've been doing is working together to develop your story, but also in the meantime, doing uh, small group work in our wonderful community to really develop our own audiences and develop our sort of Um, people say platform, but I don't really love that word. I think it's more of like developing our presence in the world as writers so that we can share our stories with other people, but also serve them. So on my end, really what I've been witnessing is you fully coming into your own as a writer and as a presence through your writing and podcasting. So that's what's been going on. That's so nice. I just love here. It's very flattering to hear you describe that because the thing that I've loved most about working with you is your ongoing message to do it authentically. And I think that the authenticity of, of saying what we have to say and doing it the way that feels authentic to ourselves has been uh, like a lightning bolt moment for me that has been consistent in our coaching and in the workshop that we took. And I love the fact that you say, I don't like to call it a platform because I was sort of like, I know this is a thing that writers have to do these days. And it was actually a serendipitous COVID thing because I was going to come to the writing retreat in Mm -hmm. July and that didn't happen because of COVID. And that's how I ended up taking the publicity workshop, which I have met so many other amazing students. And that class was really special. So that is a hugely pivotal and monumental thing in launching this podcast, because as I've been having various interviews with them, we say, we met because of Nadine. So I, <laughs> Nadine, well, this is your well, moment. Well, this, you know, I always, I've known so many amazing women individually. And for quite a while now, I was thinking, man, I want to introduce these people to each other. I feel pretty lucky, but also almost selfish that I get to have all these women to myself. What would happen if they were all in a group together? Imagine the magic that could occur. And what do you know? So much magic has because you're authentic, because you're generous. And I have to say that for anyone who's listening, if they feel like, you know, what does that even mean? Authenticity. 
I think it's like a buzzword that can be thrown around sometimes, but I'll tell you, I spent a lot of my life as a people pleaser, as a perfectionist, as a, I should, I should, I should, this person's doing that. Why am I not living up to it? It's exhausting. And I just couldn't uphold that level of shoulds anymore. And so when I started doing certain things in my writing and with my own presence that felt in tune with me, with true me, it was a little bit more effortless. It was a little bit um, more easy, but most of all, things just clicked and it felt right and it wasn't exhausting. It was like the opposite of all the other stuff. And I think you've come to know that in our group, we always talk about what is sustainable. And typically what's sustainable is what feels authentic. So for you, podcasting feels very authentic. For someone else, it might be social media. For someone else, it might be really great newsletters. So for me, I feel most in my zone when I'm teaching, coaching, and kind of curating these wonderful groups of people. And so that's how we came to be. I also read your memoir when I first met you. I'm like, all right, well, I have to buy her book and read it right away. And as writers and particularly as memoirists, our stories are all different, but they're are those moments of universality to them. And there's so much about your story that, I don't know, spoiler alert for people who don't know your story in your road through IVF and trying to get pregnant, you had a major life-threatening problem. Mm -hmm. You know what? I'm not going to go here right now because we're about (laughs) to read it. Let's not talk about it. We'll talk about it afterwards. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to shut up and I'm going to (laughs) say... Nadine, you were so brave. And that will be my only introduction to you reading this piece. So if you want to read the title and read for us what you have chosen for Daring to Tell today. Yeah, thank you. Okay, it is called Don't Lie to Appease. There we go. In 2016, notes of congratulations showed up everywhere in my text messages, inbox, and voicemail. You see, I had recently signed a publishing contract and my memoir would be on bookstore shelves in just a few months. But most people didn't know that my insides were churning with panic. While my pulse quickened about having all the intimate details of my infertility experience available a click away on Amazon, I was most terrified of one thing and one thing only handing the manuscript to my mother. She came over on an October day shortly after I'd gotten the book mock-up from my publisher. As mom smoked a cigarette in my backyard, I readied it for her, the thick stack of paper, 333 pages in total. When she came inside, the manuscript sat on the kitchen counter and I busied myself, steeping grounds in the French press. She took off her windbreaker and smiled when she saw the pages. I can't wait to read it, she said. It's a big accomplishment. But I didn't quite share her enthusiasm. Hives crept up my neck as I considered the best way to broach the subject. I'd avoided this confrontation for months, years really, but it was time for her to read my truth. I want to talk to you about something, I said, steadying my voice. 
Mom's head tilted in question. The memoir resting on the counter between us described my marriage and IVF treatments, but it also included details about my relationship with her, my complicated relationship with her. She knew that she appeared in the book, but she hadn't read the scenes. I'd written it in solitude for two years, showing no one except for my editor, my agent, and after all of the revisions, my husband. I believe that memoir writers shouldn't show drafts to all of their loved ones early on, because when they do, the writing that follows might be censored or watered down. But now that my publishing house had sent the memoirs formatted interior pages and my words were going to become an actual printed book very soon, it was time to show mom, hence the heart palpitations. To the rest of the world, mom was an energetic fitness instructor, a motivating personal trainer, a caring masseuse. Her friends thought that she had a near-perfect mother-daughter relationship with my sister and me. And in many ways, she did. We talked on the phone almost every day. We loved working out together, so much so that my husband called us the spandex crew. Every winter, we went on a girl's getaway, keeping ourselves busy for days with good hiking trails, coffee shops, and laughter. But mom was private about many things that, because of my book, would soon become public. I'd been mindful to write the book from a three-dimensional perspective, showing our humanness. I hadn't written out of revenge, but I also hadn't cast anyone as a perfect angel. My memories of mom included somersaults in the pool, roller coaster rides, camping with my brownie troop, and also her cigarette smoking, her short temper, and our explosive fights. I wrote about both sides of our experiences, the good and the bad. But now they were going to become public knowledge. Mom was not going to like this one bit. When I was growing up, the unspoken mottos in our house were, and there's a will, there's a way. You can be anything you want to be. And when it comes to our family's dirty laundry, keep your damn mouth shut. So most people didn't know about my mom's smoking habit, that I was a result of an unplanned pregnancy, and the fact that a few years ago, I hadn't talked to mom for an entire year. The estrangement took place when I was 27. By then, I'd had enough therapy under my belt to have an honest conversation with her about some of the hurt I'd experienced as a child. I was essentially saying, please see me and my pain. I needed for her to hold space for me, to listen, to acknowledge, but she just wasn't in a place to receive it. Her emotions got the best of her and she quickly erupted in shouts, blaming and shaming. How could I say such things, she asked. Didn't I know how much I was hurting her? I had succumbed to this many times before. I had shoved my own feelings to the side and apologized when I hadn't meant it just to keep the peace. But at that point, when I was 27, I was living 800 miles away from her Chicago house in my own Massachusetts home. I had a career and a husband. I was my own person. She didn't have as much power over me anymore. My angry thoughts went something like this. 
you might have steamrolled my feelings when I was a child, but not anymore. I won't stand for it. Mom, I said, my voice icily steady. I cannot listen to another sentence of how everything affects you. Have you ever stopped to wonder how I feel? What about me? What about me indeed? I told her I needed time and space to figure out who I was and how I felt without her influence. And then I hung up the phone. For an entire year, I chose not to speak to my own mother. It just so happened that it was the same year I was trying to become a mother myself. My husband, Jamie, and I wanted to have a family, but we were told that because Jamie had undergone chemo to treat cancer in his 20s, it would be nearly impossible. So we sought IVF treatments. On a sunny fall day in 2011, a year after I had stopped talking to mom, I went in for a simple egg retrieval procedure the first step in the IVF process. It was a quick outpatient surgery and I left the clinic after just a couple of hours. But unbeknownst to me, my left ovary never clotted and my own blood pumped not through my veins, but into my body, poisoning my organs, saturating my lungs. At home, I felt odd symptoms that were not listed in the discharge notes like excruciating pain in my shoulders, difficulty breathing. I threw up repeatedly and the liquid in the toilet was red. Was it my fruit punch Gatorade or blood? I wasn't sure, but something was terribly, terribly wrong. I was rushed to the ER. After a scan revealed massive internal bleeding, a surgeon rushed me down a hallway into surgery. I clung to the rails of the gurney asking what was happening if I'd need a hysterectomy. The surgeon said, I don't know what I'm going to find when we operate. My only priority is saving your life. In the few seconds before I succumbed to the anesthesia, I realized that I might not ever wake up. Jamie paced the waiting room and had to make the hardest phone call of all. He dialed my parents, knowing I hadn't spoken to them in over a year, to say that I was in life-saving surgery and the doctors didn't know if I'd make it. Meanwhile, the surgeon slipped me down the middle, moving my organs around until he found my hemorrhaging ovary like a gushing water balloon. He held it in his hand and painstakingly sutured it one bit at a time, saving it, saving me. I did wake up after that surgery but I felt irreversibly different. The next day, as I lay in a hospital bed, my abdomen ached, a six inch incision making me feel like I had been filleted. My cell phone rang on the nightstand and mom's name flashed across the screen. My God, did I yearn for her. I wanted her to hand me a bowl of oyster crackers and flattened Sprite the way she had when I was a kid on a sick day, to snuggle up and watch The Little Mermaid, but everything was different now. I felt like when the surgeon had operated on me, he had unlocked my insides. Every pain and trauma of my past had been exposed, but so had my truth, my integrity. 
I couldn't ignore its existence. If I picked up that phone to answer mom's call, things were going to be different. We were going to be different. I would no longer lie to appease her. This was years before I'd read the work of Glennon Doyle, but the way she puts it captures the feeling so well. I simply refused to abandon myself. I was going to own my truth, like it or not. I picked up the phone and answered the call. My voice was tired, brittle, reflecting the horrific torture I'd endured, but it was clear, very, very clear. I said, Mom, I need you, but I'm not ready for you to fly out here and take care of me. I have more healing to do emotionally on my own, but from here on out, I want to have honest, open conversations with you. I don't want to keep secrets anymore. To my great surprise, mom answered the call too. She said yes to having truthful conversations, to acknowledging our complicated past, to sitting with the hard stuff, to growing our relationship. And it did grow. When I became pregnant with my son, Gio, I saw mom in a whole new way. I saw all of the sacrifices she had made, not spending any money on herself so she could send me and my sister to college. I saw the pain that our year of estrangement had caused her. When Jamie and Gio and I relocated to Chicago, I was excited to be near mom again. Since then, mom and I have rebuilt our relationship through straightforward talking and respectful listening. And to watch the way she grandmothers Gio, so gentle and tender, makes me want to be tender to her. In my memoir, I had chronicled all of this. My flaws and hers are good times and bad. I'd written my truth, but now I was going to show it to the world. As she stood in my kitchen and I handed her the manuscript, I knew that this was going to be a true test of our growth. It was one thing for her to acknowledge and support my story in our own private conversations, but ultimately, could she still do that even though it would shatter the facade of near perfection that she tried to uphold for years? Could she stand her ground when friends, family, and strangers learned how things had really been all these years? I knew that I was taking the chance that she might read my words and not support me. I knew that this could be the end of our relationship. I want you to read the whole thing, I told her. It's going to be emotional, but I want us to have a really important talk after you read it. My people pleaser personality wanted to say, I'll take out anything you don't like, but I resisted the urge. I held my vow. I would not lie or withhold my truth in order to appease her. She put it in her bag and promised to read it that weekend with an open mind. I was off to do some writing, and she was going to stay and watch Gio when he woke up from his nap. On my walk to Starbucks, I thought, that went way smoother than I expected. Forty minutes later, Mom called. Gio was cranky, and Mom said I needed to come home. This was unusual. She always handled his toddler tantrums without having to call me. When I walked through the door, Mom had tears in her eyes. It was she who was having the emotional breakdown. Her bag was on her shoulder. Her shoes were on her feet. I thought you were going to stay for dinner, I said. 
I started reading the book, her voice cracked, and it's really emotional. Apparently, Gio had woken up from his nap when mom was still reading the part of my memoir in which I described her unpredictable rages during my youth, her cruel insults when I'd moved to Massachusetts. She shook her head and said, people are going to think, but instead of finishing her sentence, she walked out the door. I thought of going after her, but it wouldn't change anything. She needed to read the whole story. Mom texted me later and said she needed a few days to read it and think about it. I messaged back that I knew it was difficult, but I asked her to please read the whole thing so that she could see our transformation on the page. She said that we would talk in a few days. The whole week, I wondered what awaited me. What would she say? What should I say? Would our relationship survive this? I had to be steadfast enough in my truth to risk that it might not. I had to come to terms with the fact that if she would not acknowledge and accept what had happened and support my story, then she was not ready to love me, all of me. I had to decide that if it went that way, that at least I would accept and support all of me. My entire life, I'd been taught to keep secrets, to lie and omit in order to protect my family and other people's views of us. But that meant that I was lying to myself. It meant that by omitting my truth, I was omitting, deleting, discarding, eliminating my most authentic self. But that was the part of myself that I loved best. I hoped mom would too. Mom invited me to her house on Sunday to talk. And during the 50 minute ride, I thought about what was going to happen. Now she was gonna tell me her truth. I made a decision to hold space for her. I would acknowledge her feelings. If I wanted her to be accepting of my thoughts, then I needed to be accepting of hers. When I arrived, I spotted the pages of my manuscript on her dining room table. They were crinkled and bent, fully read through. Let's take a walk, I said. Mom grabbed her reading glasses along with a page of handwritten notes, and we headed out into the autumn afternoon. As we kicked the fallen leaves, she took a deep breath and said, the book is beautiful. I couldn't put it down. I let out a deep exhale that I didn't know I'd been holding on to. She glanced at her notes and added, but I wanna clarify something. We approached the wooded trails at the park and I nodded for her to continue. About the pregnancy, she said, lowering her voice so that nearby walkers wouldn't hear. She was referencing the part of my book where I described how she'd gotten unexpectedly pregnant with me at 19. I had often felt like a burden in her life, like the thing that had squelched her dreams. I felt like, her entire life, she looked at me as a barrier to all the things she had wanted to do. She stopped on the trail and faced me. I want you to know something, she said. You were always, always wanted. My eyes welled up and my lips quivered. In that moment, I was so grateful that my memoir was allowing us to have the conversation I'd been wanting to have with mom my entire life. What if I never gotten to hear those words? 
What if I had lived out the rest of my days always feeling like I was a burden? I sobbed in the middle of the trail and hugged her. A runner passed by us and mom wiped her eyes laughing. We must look nuts, she said. I could care less, I laughed. We started walking, but before I could add more, she said, oh, and one more thing about the necklace. I strained to recall what she was referring to, and then I remembered one tiny line in the book where I had described the rebellious teenager she had been stealing a necklace from her friend. I didn't steal it, Mom said. I just took it and never gave it back. I laughed so hard I had to bend over to catch my breath. Ma, I said, that is literally the definition of stealing. Mom couldn't help herself, and she started laughing too. We kept walking and the trail narrowed, tunneled by trees. Our shoes crunched on the gravel and we were alone. Mom, suddenly serious, stopped and faced me. I really don't care about other people reading the book, she said. I need to quit smoking and I may have to quit my job before the people at my work buy it. She laughed and she took a deep breath. But I do care what you think of me. And I do care about Gio reading it one day and thinking differently of his grandma. It hit me all at once. The very thing I wished for, unconditional love, acceptance of one's true self without judgment, mom craved it too. She wanted that from me and eventually from Gio too. I only hoped that when Gio was older and he had the guts to confront me about some of the things he wished I had done differently, that I would hear him out non-defensively, as mom had done by accepting and supporting the things I'd written. Mom, I said, finally breaking my silence, this is what I think of you. I think that you're incredibly brave for having this conversation with me and even braver for letting me tell part of our story. That was over four years ago. In the years since, we've had many other difficult conversations and fresh starts. Mom quit smoking, and we quit lying to appease each other. Mom says that the book was like a new beginning for us, and I'd agree. It made us truly know each other in a way we never had. It made us have the kind of relationship where we refuse to keep secrets, where we refuse to omit our most authentic selves. And for that, I believe it was worth the risk of daring to tell. Nadine, that story is unbelievable. Oh, thank you. It's incredibly powerful for me to hear. And I've read it several times. And we've talked about writing, about what we choose to say. But hearing you read it, it's incredibly powerful. And I think it's incredibly brave. And I told you I love that you have daring to tell at the end (laughs) of course I had to (laughs) what what is daring to you about reading this the thing that you you feel is most daring today to read it yeah yeah you know I think it actually has to do with real-time events it wasn't like okay, we had that talk and everything was great. In the years since, we've had 
repeated conversations of truth. And most recently, we've had some really, really difficult ones. So when the assignment was posted, you know, daring to tell, I was really, truly thinking about what now is the constant courage decision that I have to make almost on a daily basis. And right now for me, it is constantly deciding whether or not to lie to appease people, but primarily right now her, or to stand in my integrity. So it feels like a constant courageous act to be on a phone call or be taking a walk. And rather than just say the typical, yeah, it's fine, everything's fine, or ignore, avoid, to flat out say, okay, this is how I'm feeling and how are you feeling? It's it's a constant decision that I'm making as of late that I feel like every time I make it, I can feel the strain in my gut. You, you know, you've been writing about the gut for a while. I feel it lock up like, oh crap, I really don't want to have to do this. And it would be so much easier if I could just lie. It would be so much easier if I could just avoid, like it would just make everything smooth right now. But I know that in the long term, it won't. Yeah. And I think that that it's an excellent point that it's sort of a moving target. It's an ongoing choice because again and again and again, you have to decide, what am I going to say? What am I going to not say? What is easier just to let go by? Yeah, it feels continuously daring every single time I decide to say how I feel, not in a revengeful way, not in a cruel way. There's truth that can be told in a very authentic way that um, stands in one's integrity, not meaning to be used as a dagger, but meaning to be used as an extension of here is who I truly am and here's what I'm grappling with right now. So that's why it felt daring when, when I thought about what to share I was thinking, you know, you can think about interesting things like being young and dumb and skydiving at at 18. That is like a courageous act. But no, it didn't feel like that. What feels courageous is constantly deciding whether or not to choose my truth. I, I guess your story rings true for me in so many ways because I struggle with a relationship with my mom. I will say right off the bat, and this is hard for me to say, I'm always jealous of people who do have that close relationship with their mom. Um, I know my mom wishes she had a closer relationship with me, and I, I guess I wish I had a closer relationship with her. I think it's funny when our truth is we both want the same things, but we look for them in very different ways. I don't know. That's part of what my story is. And I feel like some of the similarities that we have here, when your mom says you can be whatever you want to be, that was something my mom always said to me. And it was so powerful and so meaningful to me. And these things about our mothers are, Mm -hmm. it's so tied into the core of our being and who we are and our survival. And I even think our identity because our moms 
help shape who we are. And when we become someone that puts them at odds with this person who has helped ensure our survival in some basic way, it's like, wait a minute, how come I, what, what is this disconnect? Um, And I think that the, um, the keeping of secrets, we're not supposed to talk about things. Um, My mother too was unexpectedly pregnant at 19 um, with me. And so um, that, when I say it, I don't feel like that's a really big deal. Like I don't feel Mm -hmm. the shame of that and what that meant for her. Although I intellectually understand it. And you Mm -hmm. had a different experience with the, like that was one of your big things is that she had the chance to say to you, you were always wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when we're writing about our real life characters and, and we've made the revisions, I do think it's helpful to empathize and, and go, okay, well, they didn't necessarily sign up to be a character in the book. However, that does not mean that it isn't part of our story. So that's always a very hard decision for memoirs to make when they're telling a scene that involves somebody else uh, who, when they were creating those actions, they, they weren't signing up to eventually be in our book, right? But it is part of our story. So what we constantly have to decide is, I always come back to how did this situation or moment impact me and and what was going on in my mind, body, heart, et cetera, as a result of this situation? So my goal is never to write in a way just to be a shock creator, to, to write a scene, to go, oh, look at that. So it's really important to think about the motivation behind what we choose to put in and what we choose to keep out. It is true that many of the things that she was nervous about me sharing, I kind of like shrugged my shoulders. Like it's really, I don't think people are going to judge, but the funniest thing was that some of the things that she was so nervous about being out in the world most people already knew <laughs> in terms of like like the smoking habit. I think she thought that less people knew about that, but I think most of us knew. And um, you know, with the, with the pregnancy, our family and friends knew. I think she was most worried about the public. She was most worried about strangers or coworkers or people who are not as close and what would they think? And that's a really interesting exploration for all of us. When we go and we put our memoirs out there, it's really thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm terrified. What's so-and-so going to think? Or what's some stranger in Virginia going to think? Or blah, blah, blah. And we just make ourselves sick with the judgment of strangers. And so not only is writing the book a a real test to, oh man, am I going to share my truth? But then when we publish our books, we have to come to terms with the fact that we stand our ground. This is our truth. And it has to be regardless of what someone somewhere might think. And that's a big internal journey. Part of the coaching that I do once 
the women writers I work with have a publishing contract, a lot of the hard coaching that we do is prepping them to hold and protect themselves in the face of whatever the judgments might be from other people. And I have to tell you that it's a difficult process, but man, is it such a big growth leap because you really go, I am okay with who I am, regardless of what my colleague, my ex, this stranger over there thinks. I am okay with me. If they are not okay with me, that is on them, but I am okay with me. That is so huge and so powerful. And um, as I try and write down my truth, I feel that very much. And it's hard to talk with you and not hear my teacher talking to me (laughs) (laughs) and just say, all right, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But I mean, but I so feel and have felt at different times if you don't have the hard conversations, you are not going to get anywhere. If you are not going to make the hard choices to do the difficult things in your life, I've always felt and and learned nothing worthwhile is ever easy. And also the things that I have felt most proud of and most satisfied about in my life have been the things that I was scared to death to do Mm -hmm. or to take on. Um, Mm -hmm. But there has been nothing more satisfying than that. It's sort of like, I don't know, the older we get and you keep learning that lesson again and again, and you go, this is not going to be pretty, something Mm -hmm. that I have to do. When you get to the point that it's something that I just can't not do, Mm -hmm. then we know we have to do the hard stuff. And so it is so inspiring to me to hear when you did the hard stuff and it doesn't always come out as you said, and you were ready to make that choice many times with your mother that she could choose to say, you know what, this is too much. I just can't. She, she was, she had some choices too, to not follow up with you. That was another one of my questions. There was that week when she was reading the memoir and you had to sit and wait What was going through your head in that week? Yeah, I think that because I'd had, we had had the estrangement and then the years of work that by the time I got to that week of waiting, I was able to restrain myself from going, okay, I'll just chop you out of the book. You know, I'll take out anything about, I was able to restrain my, what is my typical people pleasing personality in most cases, which I'm learning how to get away from, but I was able to restrain myself, but it really did come down to it. I had many conversations that week with my husband and I just kept saying, if she can't see our truth on the page and, and support me, I truly feel like we didn't grow as much as we thought we had. I truly feel like if she doesn't get this, she doesn't get me. And it was just this realization that I had to kind of be firm that I had to risk that that might be the case. Because I guess I had gotten to the point where I didn't want to love people on the surface level anymore. I didn't want to be 
oh, we have this relationship, but it's just up here. I didn't want that anymore. I'd had that for a long time with many different people in my life, but I just, I didn't want to skim anymore. I kind of had been in a period of my life where I was really starting to figure out who gets me, who really loves all of me and who doesn't. And I'll tell you, the circle became small. as it does. And it was just really coming to terms with the honesty of the the kind of relationships I was in with different people and accepting them for what they were. So it's like, okay, if this friendship, it's a surface level one, I'm not going to try to make it more than that if they're not willing to go there. But with my mom, I really wanted to go, okay, it did feel like a test. Like here it is. We've been saying we want to have this honest relationship. Well, here's our opportunity. Are you going to accept it or not? So that's what was going on that week in my head. And luckily, yes, she was willing to go there. Again, I want to uh, remove though happy ending, pretty bow. And that I don't want to make it sound as if, okay, she took on that task and everything was perfect. When the book came out, she had some anxiety. Oh, okay. We're really, the rubber meets the road here. And, uh, um, and again, we had to have more conversations and this wasn't all one way either. In the book, I'd written about ways I'd acted as a teen and a young adult that were just flat out a holish. <laughs> I mean, I am a human too. So it was about us acknowledging my side of things as well. And so the book came out and we had to have more conversations. And then it was nice to see that most people she would meet, she'd, you know, pull out a copy. Hey, my daughter wrote a book and go buy it. But it doesn't mean that she wasn't probably nervous every time someone did. And even her friends would say, to her, oh, Nadine really wrote it all in there. And very truthful friends would say to her, you know, uh, there were some scenes where uh, we got to see some sides of you. And didn't that piss you off that she wrote that? And my mom would have to say, but it was the truth. And we got through it. So you know, kudos to my mom that she had to kind of face those situations where people were like, oh, okay. And she was able to move forward that way. But even now, we are still choosing in our conversations about, all right, are we going to do what we did with the book where we're going to be honest, or are we going to do what we used to do previously and lie? And there are times when we might fall into that old category, then we'll talk the next day and go, you know what? That was just kind of surface level, small talk. Here's what's really going on. So I just want to kind of put that disclaimer out there because I am very cognizant of the unrealistic happy ending. <laughs> I am very cognizant that life is this complicated series of decisions that we make every day. Yeah. And it's funny because one of the things you went into is going to be my next question, which is like, so what happened when the book came out? Did your mom have to face some of those moments, which clearly she did, but that again, it's like each time of realignment and rechoosing of how are we going to handle this situation 
does help set a format or a, a mold, I guess is how I'm kind of thinking of it for the next time so that you can say, all right, we did this with the book. We can do this again. Doesn't make it easy when the next decision comes around. You know, I think that the multidimensionality of each person, as you describe, like you were not a perfect daughter. She was not a perfect mother. I don't think a perfect mother and a perfect daughter exist, even though when we look out at the world, we think everyone else is the perfect mother and the perfect daughter. And I want to add to that, actually, Michelle, because, you know, my mom will say from time to time when we're dealing with our crap yet again, she'll say, I just want us to be normal. I just want us to be like a normal family. And she'll point out, look at them and look at them. I just want us to be normal. Why do we have so much baggage in our, in our family life? And, and I say, mom, there is no normal. That family has this going on and this family has that going. Everybody has stuff. You don't go through life unscathed. So it's really, Elizabeth Gilbert has this wonderful quote. I'm going to totally butcher it, but it's something like the women I love have not like escaped hard things happening to them. The women that I love have had tons of crap happen to them, but they have handled their SHIT. They have handled it in a million different ways on a million different days. They have handled it. So I kind of think of it as like, I don't expect us to be normal. I don't expect us to be perfect. Uh, Mary Carr says any family with more than one family member is a dysfunctional family. (laughs) And I truly believe that. And I just think it's not about what's normal or perfect. It's how are we handling our stuff? So that's key. But the other thing I will say too, that, because I knew that I was going to be really showcasing all of us in the memoir, it actually did something else interesting, which is that when I wrote scenes about my husband and I in the book, I really started to go, okay, well, how would he write this scene? And what, where was I responsible in this situation? And so it really helped kind of shine a light when I was writing some of the hard scenes between Jamie and I about how I had made a situation difficult, how I had shamed or blamed. So in putting the microscope on anyone else, it kept on forcing me to come on back and put it on me and put it on me and put it on me. Yeah. That is the, the output of the considered word on the page. And by doing the work of actually writing down the scary things, which I'm frankly feeling right now today, putting mm-hmm. some scary words down myself, it, it's like, okay, once, once I try and say those things and then I realize I start sounding very blamey and angry and I go, okay. I was angry because of this X, Y, and Z, but you know what? My mom had X, Y, and Z points too, you know, and and that's Mm -hmm. the other thing that I was going to say that um, particularly moved me today, Nadine, that I wasn't necessarily anticipating, but it was at the very end of the essay when it became apparent to you about your mom's desire for unconditional love back from you. Mm from Gio. Um, I don't know. That just hit me in a whole new way. It's like, that's what we all want. 
we all mm-hmm. want unconditional love. And that's, I think, maybe the promise of the quote normal family is that everybody else has unconditional love back and forth without any squabbles. And that's mm-hmm. the part that, um, you know, I get angry about when I think about the way that that model is thrown up in our faces again and again and again and makes so many people feel inadequate. And which is why I feel so strongly about stories like this being out there that we all struggle and we all work so hard to have the relationships that we deserve and want. That's what I'm trying to do. Like, let's get some real, real stuff out there. Maybe one could call it authentic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you talk about unconditional love, you know, these last years have helped me realize that I'm constantly clarifying my definition of what unconditional love is, because I think some people take it as, okay, unconditional love means that I just look the other way when you're doing things that I don't approve of, or that hurt me, or that I love you, even if you are verbally abusing me, or I love you, even if, and so I think it's really important to get clear on unconditional love and what that looks like. I don't think unconditional love is enabling love. I think that unconditional love is loving someone and having the truthful conversations about the positive impact that they have in our lives, as well as the negative impact that they have on our lives and being willing to continue the work and the growth and the conversations. That's what it means to me. Yeah. I think about that. Uh, I talk about that with my best friend all the time. What does it mean? Unconditional love. So I'm glad you said that this was really such a great and important conversation. I cannot thank you enough. Mm, I loved this. This is so good. (laughs) And it's amazing to be on the flip side and see you just doing this. It's incredible. Well, I feel brave. Terrible's on my teacher. You know, and I will have to say, you know, for listeners behind the scenes, what you don't know is that Michelle had to be brave to read my essay and go, I think you need to go deeper here. And what is this actually about? So I commend you fully because it became a much richer essay because of your input. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Oh, this has been so great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, Nadine really caught me off guard with that little compliment that was very nice at the end. If you want to learn more about Nadine, her workshops, her coachings, or her memoir, you can check her out on her website. It is NadineKennyJohnstone.com. Kenny is K-E-N-N-E-Y. So NadineKennyJohnstone.com. She's also going to have her own podcast coming out soon called Heart of the Story. So stay tuned for more info on that as well. The other thing that I've noticed is after I've talked with a writer and I'm walking around going about the rest of my day, it occurs to me some question that I forgot to ask or meant to ask or realized I should have asked. And sometimes I feel that way when I listen to other podcasts too. So I'm inviting you to do just that. 
if you're sitting there saying, Michelle didn't ask Nadine about something, whatever it is, then please email it to me. I want to know. It's michelle at michellerado.com. That's my email address, and I'm a Michelle with two L's. My last name is R-E-D-O. So I am michelle at michellerado.com. Next week on Daring to Tell, we're going to hear from Rachel Lee. When Rachel isn't putting in 12 hours at her corporate day job, she puts on a cape to become the irreverent elder care superhero. Nobody facing it knows it, right? Until you've gone through it. That's a dirty little secret. It's kind of a lucky thing to get to go through it five times in a row. (laughs) Because (laughs) then you get to apply your learning. Yes, she actually lost five parental figures in five years. And boy, does she have stories and wisdom to impart, too. Hit subscribe so you won't miss that. Our episodes drop every Thursday. Thank you so much for listening. And nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground As she stood in my kitchen and handed Oh, now I feel like I'm just messing up. I know, it. no, it's, you know what I do sometimes? Take a sip of water, mm-hmm. take a deep breath, and you go. <laughs> <laughs>